You're listening to a Morley Radio production. Welcome everyone to Artcast. Just a reminder, you can listen back to Season 1 on the Morley Radio website, and you can also listen to the previous 11 episodes of Season 2, which are also now available. These include Andy Holden, Russell Shaw Higgs, Mira Kalix, Barry Rygate, Helen Kirkham, Hannah Uzor, Peter Kennard, Jeremy Della, Indy184, Chris Corkwell, and Hera. And the decision to originally do this podcast was inspired by photographs taken from the polio outbreak in 1940, where students were being remotely taught by radio. So the podcast, Artcast, started in January 2020 during the lockdowns, and I was aiming to disseminate material for students by limiting screen time and providing a feed of information for when they're taking a break from the screen. And I'm really excited to welcome with us today David Trigley, and one of our photography degree students, Catherine McGeary. So as a huge fan myself, I can state that I own the following David Trigley related merchandise. I have some David Trigley cufflinks, they're die cast, and one of them says chaos, and the other one says order. I don't normally wear cufflinks, in fact, I never really wear button shirts, but I thought I'd get some to wear to one of my best friend's weddings. Uh, that of Rolly and Manuela, which was a really beautiful wedding in Genoa. Um, I have not actually worn the cufflinks since. <laughs> and also David Trigley's books, which I can highly recommend. He kindly signed one of them for me at his private view, which is when I asked him if he'd like to take part in this podcast. And to which point he said, what now? <laughs> and uh, from that PV, he was also exchanging tennis balls so there was a show called the Mayfair Tennis Ball Exchange which was an installation comprising of 10,000 tennis balls which is at Stephen Friedman Gallery where viewers were invited to take their used tennis balls and exchange them for a new one eventually accumulating into an ever-evolving installation as more and more members of the public intervened with the installation and then in addition to the tennis ball visitors were rewarded with a pin badge now for a little bit of bio and facts. His initial fame was perhaps regularly designing Guardian cartoons since 2005. He directed the video for Blur's track Good Song. In 2005, he designed the London Underground Leaflet cover. In 2013, he was nominated for the Turner Prize. In 2015, he designed Kingsley, a mascot for the Scottish football team Partick Thistle, which was as part of a sponsorship deal. Trigley's sculpture Really Good was installed at Trafalgar Square's 4th Plinth in September 2016, and in 2020 he was awarded an OBE for his services to the visual arts. In 2020, Trigley released a body of work entitled Lockdown Drawings, 340 pieces of art inspired by the UK's coronavirus lockdown, were displayed in spring 2020 at Stephen Friedman Gallery. He has a shop based in Copenhagen called Shrig Shop. You're based in Devon now, um, so I was wondering in terms of scones, do you put jam first or cream first? Um, jam first, I reckon. What are you jam first. 
Yeah, well, I'm not from Devon, so I can do it. I'm from Leicester. We don't have yeah. snow in Leicester. So do whatever we like. <laughs> but yeah, I'd, yeah, I think I'd, I'd definitely say, I'd definitely say um, jam first. It's kind of yeah. intuitive otherwise, really, isn't it? Yeah, I've, I've heard that Devon always the cream cream first, but I'm definitely the same, I think, but jam first. Um, and then, then the next question I always ask my guests, uh, what's your favourite colour and why? Black, because it's really useful. Do you think it works become more colourful? Well, it's more useful than the other colours, you see. And, it, and it's actually, well, it's actually not a colour, I suppose. So do I have to choose another one? Black, black, um, absence of colour. All right, then, I will go for... Indigo, which right. is a bit like black, but it's got a bit more depth to it. So there you go. Okay. And what's your favourite smell? Ooh. Um, I think fresh cut grass is nice. And, um, yeah, toast. Toast is nice. Toast. Yeah. Yeah. How well done do you do you make your toast? Oh, just medium. Nothing, nothing strange. Okay. Uh, so, what's the typical routine in the uh, David Trigley studio? Uh, well, get up at five to two, um, do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Um, well, I, I studio studio sort of home as well at the moment. Although it changes over the years, it's changed. I've had various studios in different places, but the last couple of years, it's it's this spare room in in my little kind of slightly um, disrepaired house in Devon. Um, I get up about. Well, it kind of depends when the dog wants to get up. To be honest, if the dog, if I didn't have a dog, I'd probably get up much later. But in reality, it's about seven o'clock. Mm. At the top of the hill with the dog. Um, throw the ball for the dog, walk back, give the dog breakfast, uh, have my breakfast, and then um, and then I start work. And I work, and I work, and I work, and I work, and then I have a nap. And then I have Sounds lunch. Sounds good. Well, no, I have lunch, and then I have a nap. And, um, yeah, nap's pretty critical. Apparently, when you get to 35, you have to have a nap in the afternoon. Right. I'll bear this in mind. <laughs> yeah, because your brain um, gets old and you need to look after it a bit more. When yeah. you're under 35, you can um, you can abuse your brain a bit <laughs> by not having a nap. You also need to have a high-protein breakfast, apparently. Otherwise, you're not good for anything in the morning, which I adhere to. So I have a I have an I have an egg. Um, just one, just one, yeah. You know, yeah. You get cholesterol, do you? Not at my age. <laughs> cool. So you're in Devon now. Do you think this has impacted your work or inspired you at all? And how would you compare it to previous places you've based yourself, say Glasgow? I know you were there since you studied at art school. Yeah. Um, well, I think everywhere has an effect on you, definitely. Um, I guess it's very, it's very remote. It's a very different life living in, um, in a, a little village, very different social life. 
So you you can't have everything in one place. So you sort of sacrifice the, uh, you know, your wide social life and cultural things with, um, you know, landscape and nice walks and swimming in the sea, which is a pretty good trade-off, um, albeit there aren't, yeah, there aren't so many people here, so you don't, you know, you your friends are kind of assigned to you rather than you choose them. But again, that's all right. I kind of get mm. people. When I lived in Glasgow, it was, yeah, I lived in the city. I grew up in the suburbs in the Midlands, and um, I moved to the city. And I never thought that I would end up living in the countryside. This was a holiday home that I live in mm. uh, when I lived in Glasgow. And we bought a holiday home because because um, the weather's much nicer down here on the south coast, basically. And we watched, we were watching a Hugh Fernley Whittingstall cookery program, or I was. And uh, it's all set down here. I don't think it's on anymore. River Cottage, you know that one. Um, River Cottage is around here, although it's a slightly fictionalised venue. And I just thought, where's that? That sounds really nice. And we had a dog. We just got the dog. This would have been nine, nine or ten years ago. And um, so we didn't want to go to Tenerife anymore because we couldn't take the dog. Mm. So we started holidaying in, in Devon and Dorset. And then we found this place, bought it as a holiday home, and then decided we didn't want to go back to rainy old Glasgow. So we ended yeah. up leaving and living here for a bit. And then realised that the city needed to have a place in the city. So we, we got a place in Brighton, which was another place that I always really liked, apart from Glasgow. But then, yeah, we sold the place in Brighton in September. And I guess we went on a bit of a COVID lockdown odyssey. It was really nice to be here during lockdown, for obvious reasons. And um, yeah, so it's all it's all sort of changed. Now we've ended up here sort of full time, which wasn't I never really intended to do. And um, I think it it affects it's affected my work in the sense that I've had a lot more time to make the work because I haven't been anywhere, and there are far fewer distractions in in the countryside than there are in the city. You don't mm. go out and have coffee, and you don't. Well, you basically don't pop out and do anything really, apart from take the dog for a walk. And uh, there's a pub here, but you know, if it's just the one pub, you kind of um, you tire of the pub a little bit. Um, you know, I don't know. So that's it. So yeah, I guess the the impact it's had on me is um, chiefly that I've had more time to make mm-hmm. the work. Because there are fewer distractions, but I don't know. I don't think I'll be here forever. I mean, I won't be alive forever, but I, won't, I don't in the remaining <laughs> part of my life. I think I'll probably end up spending some time somewhere else. But you're talking to a person who's been here for six months, and suddenly I'm sort of craving going back to to Brighton now. I've still got a studio at Brighton and somebody that works for me, so I I go back now and again. Albeit I don't have a, a house to live in, so I've been staying in the bed and breakfast next door to the house that we sold and um and looking out of the window at the new owners who we sold the house to yeah seeing what they've done in the back garden and stuff in a very nosy eavesdropping kind of way 
I've cut down one of the palm trees. It was getting too big anyway. I don't blame them. I hope they're happy. Um, but yeah, I'm quite nosy. So there it is. Yeah. So your dog seems a big part of your life and I can't help but notice that animals in general play a very integral role in your work, um, especially more recently, it seems to be. Would you ever consider working alongside animal activists or anything like that? Because there seems to be a sort of anger on behalf of the animals as to how they've not been maybe respected and how their, their beauty is not necessarily admired by the, the human race. I'd never put a bomb in a public place, <laughs> just so you know. But yeah, I, I, other types of activism maybe I would indulge in. No violence. Uh, yeah, I am. I've become a little bit militant about animal rights. Although that said, I'm not really even a proper vegetarian. Uh, I don't eat meat, uh, but I still eat a little bit of fish, and I still have a bit of dairy. Can't quite think of anything to replace the egg with in the morning. That's the problem. I once went to the um, Infinity Foods. And um, in Brighton, which is a sort of long-established uh, health food shop. And I said, I want to stop eating eggs in the morning because I want to go towards veganism. And they said, and I said, have you got anything that uh, will do the job protein-wise that an egg does for my ageing brain in the morning? And um, what they should have said was no. But what they did say was, well, we've got this powdered something or other. <laughs> and I started I started mixing that into my porridge, and it was horrible. So yeah, that vegan option, I'm still, I'm still, I'm kind of cut out a lot of dairy, and I, but I still eat a little bit of fish. So I can't lay claim. I can't really be too militant about animal rights if I'm not a vegan. So it's uh, mm. kind of neuters my. Uh, credentials really to be a, uh, an animal rights activist although yeah I'm, I always say the excuse is you say that you're in transition that's my dog barking in the garden uh, I may have to go and chat so yes I am concerned with animal welfare but I'm not a vegan I was going to talk about the writing that you do in your work I know you've said in the past that people might ask you what sort of font you use and obviously it's your handwriting which is the distinctive element as is with anybody but I was going to ask about the way you cross out words and this honesty it brings to your work do you amplify this or is it kind of spontaneous or do you write automatically in this way within the work well I suppose it's not really it's not really an affectation it's just um a desire for for some kind of truth to the line so I don't ever I don't want to correct anything because um, it would add some level of artifice to the work mm. that I don't really, I wouldn't really approve of. And I always feel like whenever you draw anything twice, you never get it. You only get it, you, get, you should only have one crack at it. Otherwise, it just gets progressively worse. I don't really know if that's the case. but And the other thing is that um, there's a certain... Um, superstitious anxiety thing where I feel that if I start redrawing drawings that bad things will befall me in my life in a slightly obsessive weird compulsive way 
Um, so there is that. But yeah, it's more to do with just that it being some kind of truth. Because I'm not really, I'm not really from an illustration background. I'm well, I'm not. I, I'm I'm a fine artist. I think of myself as a fine artist rather than a a graphic artist illustrator. And I come from a you know the artists that I admire tend to be more conceptual artists like Marcel Duchamp the Dadaists kind of thing and and maybe painters like um, Philip Guston or some people like that very admire although there isn't really anybody like Philip Guston but you know what I mean so there is that you know I, I see this sort of drawing as maybe as a kind of event that I don't want to subvert it's not a quest for excellence it's a it's an inquiry or a, a happening somehow on a page and it needs to be truthful hence um this crossing out i mean there is occasionally i might repaint something if if something really bad has happened mm. like i vomited on the page i would go on those occasions i would uh, <laughs> i would re- redraw or repaint something but under normal circumstances no if i had a really bad nosebleed i would repaint or redraw <laughs> I don't think of anything else really. Just vomiting and nosebleeds. <laughs> at what point did you consider yourself being a professional artist? I know you spoke about it. you're considering. Do you say you're considering yourself a fine artist because a lot of people maybe pigeonhole you into other other categories like cartoonist, illustrator, or things like that? Well, I think generally people project their own um, job description onto onto others. So all fine artists see all other creative people as, as fine artists, whether they consider themselves to be illustrators or whatever. And likewise, illustrators consider any kind of graphic art to be illustration. And, yeah, I won't bore myself with having that conversation again. But, yeah, I consider myself to be an artist and I increasingly, I don't really, you know, illustration is a very definite thing. Illustration exists alongside uh, a text or an idea to present a message to illustrate. And fine art generally exists on its own terms. Um, I need to do that. And it's very, you know, but then within that, art obviously is a very slippery definition, whereas illustration isn't or is less. Mm. So I don't worry too much about that stuff. And I, I don't, I, you know, I never, I'm never offended if anybody says that I'm a, a cartoonist, for example, because, you know, what I do functions as that, and you, you could call it that quite legitimately. Illustration, perhaps less so, Um although I do, you know, I do do illustration commissions from time to time. And my work is used for an illustrative purpose uh, sometimes. But, yeah, no, I don't really consider myself to be an illustrator except when I'm doing illustration, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But, yeah. And then in 2016, you were obviously nominated for the Turner Prize and then you also worked on the fourth plinth commission in Trafalgar Square with the piece titled Really Good. Uh, which is a seven metre high sculpture of a hand giving a thumbs up sign, uh, cast in bronze with dark patina, much to fit in with the aesthetic of the sculptures that were in the general vicinity. I was wondering if you could like talk just to give our students some, some sort of insight into how it was working on such a big public sculpture commission and any challenges that were faced. And also, I guess, how your work 
potentially for serving a purpose at the time to raise morale and instill optimism? I guess when you're, you know, when you're looking at the activities as a, of an artist from the outside, you perhaps might imagine that artists have a strategy, you know, that they are as a representation of that strategy or that desire to communicate a specific thing. Whereas in reality, you know, the, the fourth Plinth Commission, there was sort of a narrative to it happening. It was just a, a thing that evolved an event that evolved in my life and became a, a sort of special important artwork within my um within my canon if you I can use that word um I don't know if they still do this but they uh they invite a number of artists to submit a proposal which you get paid for so I was kind of thinking you know it's like an A4 drawing and a a couple of paragraphs as to what you intend to do. So I was like, well, I get paid a thousand pounds to do this. I might as well do it. Only take me half an hour, maybe an hour. You get paid a thousand pounds an hour. Wow. So I thought I'll do that. And I had, but then I also, in my mind, I sort of, I was like, well, there's zero chance that they'll invite an idiot like me to do the fourth print, to put something on the fourth print. So I'll just amuse myself with the proposal. And um, I, I sort of, I had a drawing that I'd made of, of some hands doing a thumbs up with really long thumbs, as if the length of the thumb suggested the uh, that it was um, better, not just good, but better because of the length of the thumb. So I don't know, in my mind. And I wrote some kind of really very flippant um, proposal you know, say, basically saying that if they made this giant sculpture, that the world would be a better place, which is kind of nonsense, obviously. And I knew it was, you know, but anyway, I was like, there you go, £1,000, great. And then I got shortlisted for it. So six artists get shortlisted for two commissions. And um, and then I, saw, I, w- I was in trial, I was going, I thought, well, actually, I'd really like to do this. And with the great thing was the with the commission you you then get paid some more money to make a maquette and maquettes are really nice and they give you a little model of the fourth plinth to put your maquette on i thought that's a really nice thing and it was so i made it a manageable sort of size and i thought actually i really like you would really like to actually make this it would be really amazing so having been really ambivalent about it but not imagining that i would actually get to do it i did get to do it and I, my my thing was chosen but the problem with that was that um, I'd written this proposal where I just said that, you know, I just said something that obviously wasn't true, like that it would make the world a better place. But then I started thinking about it. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what I said. You can probably read it somewhere, but it was it was kind of daft nonsense. You know, it was like a political, um, like the kind of thing a politician might say. But then I had to sort of stand by this statement. And I realized that I actually, I kind of believe the statement because art does make the world a better place. I mean, you have to imagine as an artist, I presume that when you make an artwork, it, it is some kind of positive intervention in the world, albeit maybe a modest one. So that was quite interesting because it was, it was a statement that was simultaneously sarcastic and sincere, <laughs> which I found kind of interesting like I'd never I never really thought about it that way before 
So, so that made the piece quite intriguing. And then you make this piece and then you've got to try and figure out. I don't know why did you didn't intend to make it, but it actually gets made. And, and then, you, you know, it takes on a life of its own and it becomes a work that people just project their own meaning onto. And that's the nature of all artwork, I suppose, that the viewer projects meaning onto it. So the artist isn't really fully in control of the responses they get from the artwork. So you had, for example, the the Women's March. One of my friends was on the Women's March on, on International Women's Day, I think. And they were congregated by this, by the Trafalgar Square. And he, she sent me a picture of them all giving their thumbs up that I was endorsing, um, you know, the women's rights and everything, which I do, obviously. Um, but then at the same time, there was an English Defence League, not the same day, but another day, the English Defence League showed up. And they were doing the same thing. <laughs> so kind of an endorsement of everything, you know. You can't just have it, you can't just have progressive causes. You have to endorse the the fascists as well. <laughs> so that was funny. Um it was sort of funny, but awkward and difficult and strange. And um, but it illustrates my point that you know every artwork is the different, every artwork is a work in progress, and um, and everybody projects their own meaning onto it. Mm. For the record, I am very much opposed to the views of the English Defence League. <laughs> um, pretty much pro all of the uh, activities of the women's movement. Then there was the Turner Prize. The Turner Prize is, is a funny thing. It's a curious thing as an artist because you achieve a... I think... I don't know. You could talk to other artists about this who've had the experience, but it's sort of like a, a, an endorsement of your practice and you, you, you reach a certain level of success and then you feel that you, you might be given this accolade to be, to be nominated or to be shortlisted for the Turner Prize. And obviously it's, it's, a big, it's kind of a big deal, but it was, it's one of those things that after a certain point, it, it, what goes around comes around. So it's going to happen to you. Uh, and you know, a lot of people do refuse to accept the the, the the nomination or the short being shortlist, and they don't want to do it for reasons that that vary, but mostly because they just don't really feel uncomfortable with the publicity, they feel uncomfortable with the thing. Uh, so anyway, it's, it sort of happened to me quite a bit later on in my career. So this was nine years ago. So I'd have been forty-four at this point, and. Um, yeah, so I was quite established, and also at one point, at that point, I think you, by the time you got to fifty, you couldn't be nominated anymore. But um, mm. so anyway, it happened, and I quite I quite enjoyed it. It was in it was in Derry. The show was in Derry, which is a really interesting place. And it was really like Northern Ireland. The people are really nice, and obviously all the troubles and everything adds a an aspect to the to life there, which is which is important to, to experience and to talk to people about. But I, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the experience and I made it very much on my own terms. So I presented a piece that I wanted to show at a certain time that I thought was appropriate. And also the other good thing about it was that I there was another guy, uh, a male artist who was nominated, who was seen as being 
the hot artist basically he he was sort of we were not fit to gather up the crumbs from under his table as far as the critics were concerned so they said it was really imbalanced that this guy you know who's a genius should be put together with these other three people who just were not well not really in the same league at all and obviously i was not in the same league as him which is a bit dispiriting when you're when you're not that person so in a way, it took the pressure off. I sort of felt some sympathy for him. Um, so was that a general sort of feeling around the media then at the time? It was explicitly stated in right in the Guardian and the Observer that this was the case, and um, mm-hmm. and it was sort of acknowledged that he was hot property, and we were just he was killer and we were filler, basically. Tino Cigar, that was the guy's name. Okay. You heard of him? Yeah, is a performance. Yeah, sort of performance, but sort of mix art without any material form, which is a really powerful thing, you know. And when yeah, I saw a piece of his at the Turbine Hall in the Tate, which involved participants becoming part of the work and then involving other members of the public as well, which is quite interesting. But anyway, it's, you know, as a as a conceit for artwork, as a starting point, if you always make work, it's really powerful. Just that, but but within that way of working, there are artworks that are more and less successful and obviously I make funny drawings principally and I make some odd sculptural works and that's what I do I can't you know I can't really compete with somebody who has who makes work on a conceptual on that conceptual basis because I'm always going to make a silly sculpture or some funny drawings and you have it's quite harsh it's quite harsh for them to highlight one of the four when obviously the art world is so subjective as well yes but then but the good thing well i you know to be fair i i like his work as well i've seen a couple of pieces that i've really really thought were fantastic over the years i mean i didn't really like wasn't so keen on the piece that he presented for the turner prize but there are other things that i thought were really really great and also the conversation that surrounds them is really interesting but anyway he didn't win (laughs) somebody else won it was um, Laura Provost, she's oh, yeah. well, lives in London, but she's French. But anyway, it's made a really interesting installation. So, yeah, I mean, that was must have been really difficult for him. So I felt really quite sorry for him in the end because it wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't suggesting that he was better than the rest of us. It was the critics. So it was, mm. um, it was, it was quite difficult. But then again, but the great thing about it was for me was that you sort of realised that whilst you are thrust into this critical situation where you're, you know, you're measured against other artists, which you feel very uncomfortable about, because you'd never say, I'd never say that my art, my work was better than those other three artists, for example. And I don't really think you can compare artworks as really different. So it's a strange, it's sort of a strange thing to happen. But what I really enjoyed was, I felt really free after I'd done it. Like I felt like, well, there are no answers to these questions as to who's the best artist. Because if you ask 10 people who they're, you know, whether they like an artwork, you'll get 10 different responses. And it's the same, the same for everything. So it's it's like I stopped at that point. Maybe I stopped a bit before that. I stopped reading reviews of my work. I stopped reading interviews. I stopped, you know, really engaging with the critical response to my work because I suddenly felt that it was really unhelpful. Like a good review is, is, is really unhelpful and a bad review is really unhelpful as well. And you have to, 
whilst you kind of want responses to your work and responses inform how you feel about the work, you can't really place excess value on certain people's responses to it because it's not it distorts what you your perception of what you're doing because if you're reviewing another people an exhibition for example it's just going to be your opinion and the the writings of critics are not are not good writings or bad writings because of the opinions they're good because of good or bad because of the way those opinions are articulated and that's something that I think it's really important to remember that you, your own opinion of the work, your your own understanding of your work is the most important thing. That's not to say that you shouldn't ever engage with other people's, you know, response to the work because it's good that you have responses to the work, and they're they're interesting. But you shouldn't necessarily feel bound by, by those things. Otherwise, you just make work for other people. You've got to make the work for yourself. Before, you know, you've got to like it yourself before, unless otherwise you can't expect anybody else to like it. So that was a really a kind of a refreshing thing for me and something that I've really benefited from. But yeah, the Turner Prize is, is, a, bit of, is a bit of painful. I'm sure somebody listening to this at some point will be nominated for the Turner Prize because like I say what goes around comes around but yes remember what I said. Catherine have you got anything you wanted to say at at this point? I was just interested we were saying about um, uh, critics obviously you've got um, a very healthy um, uh, uh, social media feed you see something on uh, fresh on Instagram I think almost almost daily and I was just wondering what you're saying about the critics that how is that the growth of social media, how has that impacted you in the sense that you can now interact directly with your audience and they can tell you what they think or, you know, you can have more of a, more of a direct um, uh, connection rather than filtering it through a third person? Um, I mean, you probably realise this if you look at my social media feed that I don't interact with anybody at all. It's just transmit only. And because if I didn't do that, I think you'd probably go mad. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, um, the whole notion of, of, I don't know, Twitter spats or whatever, people quarrelling, I just think it's the most pointless, <laughs> pointless endeavour anywhere. I mean, I, on social media, you, you have, it's a conduit to everyone else in the world. And if, do you want to kind of, filter or sift through the opinions of everyone in the world about your work because it really <laughs> is pointless um, and it will upset you and um, and that you know I think human beings are hardwired to remember unpleasant things that people said about them or, or bad responses and they stick in your mind like a thorn so 100,000 people can say that they they love you but one says that you're a <laughs> Is the one that you'll remember. <laughs> I mean, it's probably a very animalistic reason for, for that, you know, so that we can sort of see who our enemies are. But yeah, it's just not helpful. I think it's you, that, that said, I, li- I really like social media. I like, you know, that it's a form of publishing and that you can have you can have an output that's really put out there daily that you're in control of. And you can it's yeah, it's it's like publishing a, a book. It used to be mm. before mm. this existed. 
So I, I really like that. And you can have a, a narrative and also economically, it's sort of, yeah, business-wise, it's obviously a good thing. Mm-hmm. I realise that the more popular you are on Instagram or whatever, the more powerful you are. And people ask you to do things. And what I'm sure they wouldn't have asked me five years ago. I'm sure like fancy fashion brands wouldn't wouldn't really be that interested in me. Although, you know, I've done lots of merchandise stuff over the years. Mm. Yeah, you realise you have this power of a certain number of followers on Instagram. (laughs) And that's sort of, uh, yeah, I guess that can't really be a bad thing. But when I first started publishing books with a bigger publisher, which was maybe about, I mean, I've published books with publishers for 25 years, 20, you know, when was the first one? 96, I published a book with somebody else that wasn't like self-published. Then you you do marketing and whatever, and then fast forward to 2010, I, I had a bigger publisher who published my work. And then they told me that I had to do social media. And um, and then I sort of did social media in a sort of quite cursory way. Like I didn't really understand why I was doing it. I was just basically doing it because the publicist had told me to do it. Yeah. Twitter and then Instagram. And then I realised after a certain point that it was actually more important than publishing a book. Like so that the originally the social media was there to help the sales of the book whereas I think now it's almost as if the book is there to draw to point people to the social media Mm. feed so so that's interesting so it's become a really important way to disseminate the work and I I like that sort of adventure (laughs) when you're when you're creating a piece do the words come first or does the image come first um Mostly the image comes first, but mm-hmm. not always. I guess I, I tend to I write lists of things and statements of things, and then I try to illustrate that statement, and I've sort of forgotten what I intended when I wrote the, the list of things. So I'll illustrate that, and then somehow usually an, another text will arrive afterwards. So they're, they're not really sim- simultaneous. So, so I, it's an illustration of something I've already written, and then usually that text changes. So I don't know. In a way, it's sort of both. The text starts it off, but then the text doesn't always stay in the work. But yeah, in, in a way, the image is easier to write text to describe an image. But that said, you know, my endeavour, as you probably realise, is to try. You know, that there is a, a slippage between the illustration and the text that describes it. Mm. And that's that's yeah. the sort of field that I'm kind of mining, yeah. that I'm interested in, that slippage of the way that words don't quite describe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I noticed on your um, website there's an entire section on uh, tattoos <laughs> what your opinion is of that. Is, that? is that deliberate? How did that come about? Like all things, just sort of came about by accident, really. I think somebody, maybe when I first started doing the website, somebody had, a ta- had done a tattoo of a text, quite a lengthy text from one of my books, and I had it tattooed on her arm and sent, it, sent me a picture. 
So I put it on the website and then it, it just sort of snowballed from there where I became a de facto tattoo designer. And over the years, I've done various events where people show up and I just draw on them and they have it inked in there and then, which is both troubling and exciting. <laughs> it always seems to be... Um, it always seems to be the young and the beautiful that want to be defaced by me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I always say to them, I said, listen, if I were you, I wouldn't have this inked in. If I were you, I'd just go and wash it off. But no, they they won't listen. They do it. And I, I kind of also think they have ridiculous things tattooed on them anyway, like skulls and whatever. So I think, well, if they're going to have some horrible, horrible image drawn on them it might as well be me that does it <laughs> i'd like to get the partick thistle uh football mascot tattooed i think you are you wouldn't be the first <laughs> would not i'm probably okay. not no but anyway yeah that can be done but you'll have to be a partick thistle fan to have that it's true yeah you do have to relinquish any other football sympathies that you have i did have a little mini mascot of it because they were being sold on the Partick Thistle merchandise website. Yeah. So that. I know um, Craig, who's otherwise known as Kingsley. <laughs> it's just one person now who's taken on the yeah. job of being Kingsley. It sort of was like they had to get a new Kingsley, and uh, it was a bit like deciding on the new Pope. It was written about in, <laughs> in the evening times in Glasgow. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, it's like white smoke appearing from the chimney. <laughs> Once the new Kingsley is just is chosen, or the Dalai Lama, maybe like when they choose the Dalai Lama. That's another thing that bothers me, the Dalai Lama. Because the Chinese are gonna get involved in that, aren't they? Anyway, that's a tangential issue. Okay, Craig is Kingsley, and um I was gonna I was gonna wondering if we could get Kingsley to go on tour and go to other football clubs. I'm thinking aloud now, but doesn't he go around with the team anyway? Or... He does, but yeah, only yeah. teams that Partick Thistle are playing. But I go and watch. Yeah. Um, I watch different teams now. I live in England. I don't see Partick Thistle very often anymore. So I go and watch uh, a team in Brighton called Whitehawk, who are an, a non-league team who are very, very bright. And um, one of my friends is their mascot, and she's a lobster. And, <laughs> she basically just showed up in a lobster costume one day and became the mascot. And she's, oddly, she's also from Mary Hill in Glasgow, which is, as you probably know, is where Partick Pistol Stadium is located. So I thought maybe she, Kingsley, could come down um, or Craig could just send a costume down and I could wear it because we're about the same size. <laughs> so, yeah, watch, watch this space. Yeah, there's a vlog of football mascots at minute silences. So wherever there's a minute silence at a game, yeah. um, but obviously because they can't change their expression, yeah. it's a sort of juxtaposition of situation. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about uh, you touched upon how you get commissioned to do merchandise, but obviously you've got your shrig shop in Copenhagen, uh, which in the last week alone. I know it's raised 23,000 euros for Doctors Without Borders to support the relief effort in Ukraine, which is absolutely amazing. So well done on that. Um, and I was wondering if you could have any advice on artists wanting to explore the realms of merchandise or homeware or things like that, because I think it's a really nice 
way of making your work affordable to, to everyone, really? Well, I think that in turn, I've been doing merchandise for many years and I did it, I guess I started doing it around the dawn of the dawn of the internet, I suppose, when we all had email. Whereas when I first started doing illustration, merchandise, whatever, I would photocopy a black and white drawing and send it in the post to somebody. And then once email arrived, you could just drag and drop image files into an email. People would say, can we do a T-shirt with this particular image? And, and you just find the image on your desktop and drag it into the email and a month later a t-shirt would arrive in the post um, and it became very easy but then I realized after a certain point I had to sort of rein it in somehow because I just was losing track a lot completely lost track of all the stuff that I've done I have completely lost track of everything that I've done so in a way the shrig shop thing was a it was actually a bit of a response to being ripped off, to be honest with you. <laughs> you reach a certain status and you get ripped off, uh, and that's just the way it is. So in a way, I have to do merchandise. Otherwise, the merchandise would still be there, and I just wouldn't have any control over it, and I wouldn't get paid for mm. it. So, and also, obviously, having the shrink shop means you can do charitable things, like you just mentioned, which is, mm. which is nice. But it's nice to do things on your own terms, I guess. I would say, and that's part of the rationale for, for doing, um, for having my own shop. And it's a collaboration with the gallerist, Nicolo Valle, who I have in Copenhagen, who I have a very long relationship with, and I know Copenhagen is a city that I go to a lot because I, I make mm. friends there and have a lot of friends there. And so I oddly have a real, just one of those cities that I've ended up having a relationship with and know a lot of people from there, and they seem to have some relationship to Glasgow over the years which I never quite understood why but anyway what I'd say to anybody young artist who would think about making artwork for merchandise is that the rules are the same as making an artwork really as long as it's a good you know tea towel then that's fine it's just the same as making a painting you know make a good painting make a good tea towel make a good whatever pair of boxer shorts whatever you care to do. I guess also it, it depends on the type of artist you are as well. It's sort of like, um, I'm sure Monet's water lilies wouldn't look that good on a tea towel. Um, whereas my drawings, they're not, they're not really compromised so much by being put on merchandise because they're just black and white drawings. So the same cannot be said of Monet's water lilies uh, and the tea towel version of water lilies which i'm sure you can buy somewhere yeah definitely. a really big tea towel of it maybe that would be <laughs> maybe a beach towel yeah maybe beach towel i don't know <laughs> anyway monet's not around to uh, to discuss this but i'm sure he would uh, i'm sure he'd be cool with it <laughs> he'd be like do you want to do a tea towel dear claude <laughs> um, we saw your painting, the water lilies, <laughs> on your Instagram feed. I think it's an absolute knockout. Um, <laughs> we would like to make a bath mat out of water lilies image. Would you be amenable to this, Claude? <laughs> <laughs> um, Claude writes back, uh, oh, we, oui, may we, bien sûr. Knock yourself out. 
five <laughs> percent uh, of RRP. I'll uh, CC my agent into this email. <laughs> what would your dream art school consist of in terms of facilities, curriculum, and teaching structure? Everybody would get lunch every day. <laughs> lunch cooked for them, and um, there would be a place to have a nap. And uh, yeah, that would be that would be the chief chief requirements but i think i think the most important thing is to have a space obviously just have a space to work in to have the ability to make stuff basically all the things that you don't currently get at an art school <laughs> which we're is quite lucky at morning actually we're quite lucky we still have uh, studio spaces one of the life the few that do <laughs> so that's good yeah i think it's really good for the students to be able to produce stuff and live with it and return to it rather than packing it up or hot desking. Yeah, I think that's sure. a disaster. I think you might as well not go to art school if that's if you're just hot desking. I, I suppose that the things that make a good art school are pretty obvious. Having somebody to talk to about your artwork who knows a bit more about making art than you do, that's kind of important. And somebody to help you make stuff and lunch. I think lunch is really important. I'm I'm serious. I'm I'm in the process of trying to set up a new studio. All right, I have a I have a new studio in near where I live in Sidmouth, uh, just around the corner, and um, we have a I have a kitchen in there and a sofa bed. And these are important things, you know, to eat and to sleep. <laughs> they facilitate the creation of art. I did some teaching once at the Royal Academy. And uh, as you possibly know, the Royal Academy feeds their students, or they, at least they did when I was there. And I thought this was fantastic. Mm. Feed them, and they will make better art. Uh, no, I did an exchange in an art school in Germany a few years ago, and they, they, they did exactly the same thing. They'd have a nice garden where you'd have a table tennis table and make lunch for everyone. It was a couple of euros. It's really nice. Yeah, it's great. It's really great. So I don't know. I think the whole art school experience is um, when I was at art school, it was, you know, I didn't have to pay for one thing. I mean, it's all very well having lunch or not having lunch. But yeah, if you've got to pay and you, you end up with £50,000 worth of debt at the end of your education, that's not very, that's not a great situation. You have to think very carefully as to whether whether that's worthwhile. I think the, the problem is that when you go to our school, you kind of assume that it's just part of your education system. You don't realise that you're purchasing a service or an experience and that you're entitled to expect a return on that investment. Mm. Not a return on the investment, but you're entitled to demand a service for what you're, you're buying a service. And if you don't get that service you should not have to pay for it. I always, I often have thought that, you know, you could have a studio space and um, have somebody to come and talk to you once every couple of weeks. Yeah, and, and have your lunch made. And it shouldn't cost £50,000 <laughs> several years. Um, you know, and that's before you even paid your rent. I think there's a much more economic model, and I feel that art schools a lot of the time are 
know, they're basically businesses. Mm. And the way that they make money is because the uh, their customers, i.e. the students, don't actually realize that they're customers. <laughs> it's yeah. a great economic model to have a customer that doesn't realize they're a customer. <laughs> uh, and also the, brand, the brands as well. There's a lot of big brands that ride on reputations of decades of the past, I guess. And I do sort of feel like the bubble might burst a little bit because you sort of hear from young people now and again through their peers and it sort of filters around that you hear about these experiences where they get one tutorial a term or something. I mean, I think word of mouth is a powerful thing and I think hopefully eventually that, that bubble will burst in the, in the sense of like the bigger universities. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of should burst really because, you know, as a tutor at art school, you don't really get paid very much either. So when I've been a visiting tutor, you know, you end up doing 12 tutorials in a day. And it's just, it's sort of exhausting and, and sometimes a bit depressing. And she it never should be like that at an art school. But I think there is a different model. I mean, art, so art is a subject that fits, doesn't fit very well into the education system, but it seems mm-hmm. to have been shoehorned in as if, having, you know, a 2-2 in fine art, which is what I've got, is going to help you <laughs> in the world of work. And, you know, I obviously I became a professional fine artist and I've got a degree in fine art. But that's not the reality for most people. It certainly isn't going to, you know, the fact that you've got um, a degree isn't really neither here nor there. If you want to be a practising fine artist, yeah, I think it's, um, it's a rip-off. To some extent and I you know I like you know I like teaching I like sharing experiences with the younger artists and and in hopefully helping people in that way but I'm at a stage now where I don't really care I don't want to be paid for it I don't need to be paid for it but at the same time I don't want them to pay for it either you know I think it should be free to all human yeah. beings to be allowed to make art and to be allowed to have some uh, response to that artwork and to be taught how to make it because uh, it doesn't take that long to figure out how to make artwork. I mean, it's obviously difficult to make good artwork, but I think every, it's a very human thing uh, to want to make an artwork, to make something, to register your existence somehow. And um I'm very much against people trying to monetize it. Okay. Uh, have you got any more things you wanted to ask, Catherine? No, I've got a little scribble down here that says um, accessibility and the democratization of art. Somebody was saying to me the other day, because I was saying I was doing this on uh, you know, today, they were saying that they feel that you're almost um, like a gateway drug, as it were, <laughs> like into art, you know, that it's sort of, it's very uh, straightforward, isn't the right word. Yeah, uh, the, the democratisation of art, I, I don't really know. I don't really know what's meant by that in the sense that, you know, because my art exists on tea towels, it's democratic. I'm not entirely sure. I think when you talk about democracy, it depends I think everywhere should be accessible to an audience and the audience should be inclusive. You know, the attitude towards having an audience should be as inclusive as possible in that 
nobody should feel intimidated about entering an art space and looking at art and thinking about it and having an opinion about it. And also nobody should feel that they're not included from the ability to make art as well. But that said, you still have to, you know, still expertise within art. Mm. There are still artists who are really, who are really worthy to, to occupy a space. And, and it's important that you have professional curators and professional artists and, and experts. I think that's important. But at the same time, you, you know, everybody should, should feel that they're included in that conversation and everybody should feel that they're, that they have, they too have the ability to make art or the, the facility to make art. So, yeah, I believe in democracy, but I also believe in expertise, if mm. you want to call it that, or I believe in, um, yeah, I believe that the fancy artists like me should uh, should be respected. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, jo- I'm joking. I mean, the thing is, like, we're, I'm doing a, I'm doing a community art project in Sidmouth, near where I live here, and um, it's called Sidmouth School of Art, and you can go to sidmouthart.org. Um, it's not called sidmouthschoolofart.org because that would have the word fart in it, which we <laughs> sidmouthart.org. Anyway, it, it's basically a community art project, and our model is that we have, um, I don't know, it's very small, we have a billboard space that we set up in the centre of Sidmouth, a practicing artists are invited to come and make a work for the billboard. And then as part of that, they they do a workshop or a mentoring session with a group within Sidmouth. So the, we had a, a professional photographer called Robert Darch, who's a kind of a local guy to Devon. And he made a piece, a really, really, really lovely billboard piece. And then he mentored the Sidmouth Photographic Club to help me, who are all amateur photographers. And, and then some of those people who were mentored made work for the space. So we have this, um, yeah, we were sort of acknowledging that Robert was a, a fancy photographer, fancy artist, and we wanted and we, we acknowledged the fact that he had something to say that those amateur artists wanted to listen to. Mm. But it was about sharing and it was about facilitating other people. So it was a nice model, but... If you know what I mean, I, I feel like um, there was democracy there, but also there was a, a respect for somebody yeah. who's had a, a who has a, a practice that the other people don't have. You know, he's had yeah. experiences and yes, yeah, has, has talent and um, insight that other people didn't have and that they really benefited from. Mm. Mm. That sounds lovely. That sounds really nice. What's next on the agenda? Dog walk or some drawing? <laughs> no, <laughs> no uh, I've already bought the dog. I don't know what day is it. Wednesday? Is it Wednesday? Well, I, I'm making some lino prints, and mm. I've got my. Uh, you see it just in the corner of the frame there. I've got a hot plate and some lino. I had it lying about, and lino doesn't. I realised that lino doesn't last forever. I feel like this might be drying out, so I've got to use it all. So I'll be carving lino. I'm going to put my old um, clothes on and carve some lino and uh, possibly have a nap. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. It's um, my pleasure. 
Have a good day. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Nice to talk to you guys. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Artcast. Today we were joined by David Shrigley and Catherine McGeary from our photography degree here at the Chelsea Centre. You can check out David's work at davidshrigley.com. If you'd like to own an affordable piece of the man himself, you can also find out about more about David's merchandise at shrigshop.com, where you can find postcards, posters, accessories, homewares, and limited editions. And that's a wrap for season two. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to everyone at Morley Radio who's been assisting with the production of the series. And thanks to everyone who has been listening. I've really enjoyed the series in terms of actually having students join me for the discussions. Uh, It's been really great having a range of different perspectives uh, from a mixture of courses and levels, uh, which has been really nice based here in the studio with the different guests. Thank you. Come to Morley College to build, change, or discover new passions and skills that interest you with a variety of specialist short courses. For more information, visit morleycollege.ac.uk forward slash short courses.